The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. So we pause to more carefully and thoughtfully say thank you for your work in sending your son. Thank you for opening up access that we can come to you and seek help, to seek grace and mercy in our time of need. And so we do that now. We say, would you please, Father, Son, and Spirit, come and inhabit this room and control each individual heart here that you would speak and we would hear. Lord, would you do that here in this place? And I also want to pray that you would do that in Tucson and in places touched by what has happened down there in this last day. We probably don't know any of the the people there personally involved, but you know each one of them and know every single detail of their lives. And we pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would be present there in the homes of those who have lost family members, in the homes of those who have family members in the hospital. We pray that you would be in the churches that have contact with these individuals. Maybe some are members. Maybe some live next door to members. Maybe some have gone to church this morning for the first time in a long time. And Father, we pray that you would use this to speak in ways that people hear. To speak and to draw people to yourself. An immense blessing to them. Would you do that even in the midst of this time of great tragedy? We don't know what's going on there, Lord, but you do. And we pray that you would use it wisely for your glory and for the good of particular people who live in that city. Lord, we are here now to hear your word. For us, English words typed on a page. But these are living words God written a long time ago for us to hear this morning. And you intended, for all eternity past, you intended that this morning would come, that these words would be spoken to these folks gathered here. And so I pray, would you complete the work by moving into here, grabbing us and changing us. Give clarity to what I say. Give clarity to our thinking. Own it, I pray. Spirit of God, this passage in particular is about your role in revealing what God has done, what God has said, revealing it to the minds of individual human beings. And so I pray, would you do that this morning? Would you shine? Would you reveal the truth of God to us and change us by it? Do that, I pray, Spirit. Illumine God the Son for the the glory of God the Father and for the good of the people of God. It's in Christ's name that I pray this. Amen. It's been nearly a month since we were last in the book of 1 Corinthians. The holiday season has taken us around to a bunch of different places. We've done some different things. But now this morning we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we continue on with Paul's Sustained argument for the centrality of the cross of Christ. 
You may recall that in chapter 1, if you were here a month ago or two months ago, you may recall that in chapter 1, Paul began this letter by repeatedly ten times in the first ten verses saying, the Lord Jesus Christ, some variation thereof. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to, to create an impression, to put something on our minds. And then right after he does that, he moves to the, the greatest surface level issue that this church is facing in all churches, we are no exception. We have all faced this. He moves to the issue of division or discord. Within the church there, there are groups of people that are set against each other, some following after certain leaders or certain philosophies in conflict. And then sometimes the church as a whole is in conflict with Paul. And so he moves right to that issue, the issue of discord. That's the surface level issue. But he does so by addressing the real problem that lies beneath that. Beneath the division and discord, there is a departure from the gospel. The message of the good news. Not officially. I mean, it's the church. I still, I still agree with it all. We have to officially agree with it all. So they haven't officially departed from the gospel, but they have left off all that God's work on the cross through Jesus is about. All of the, the blessing, the, the forgiveness, the the, the gifts that He has given them in Christ, they've, they've kind of left that all over here and have moved on instead to things I want in this life. Things that I think will fulfill me. Things will give me significance. And, and that's what they're chasing after. That's what they're living for. So the real problem is what they left. So He turns to that and He addresses it. And He's preaching the, to the church the message of the cross. Making very clear that He wants to know nothing among them but the cross. Folly in the world's eyes, the wisdom of God. So he's gone on for that, for the last half of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2. Paul doesn't want anything to do with the wisdom of the world, but instead embraces the wisdom of God, which is Christ and Him crucified. That's our context. It's important to re-familiarize ourselves with that, not just because it's been a month since we've looked at this, but... But because that sets our context for this morning, really, we're just continuing on with the next sentence, right? I mean, it's, it's still flowing right into this. And this passage in particular, throughout church history and in certain circles of Christianity even today, is a passage that is sometimes kind of lifted out of its context. And the meaning of certain words and certain flavors of the argument is missed when you forget what it has come from. So when we talk about wisdom in this passage, we are not talking, as sometimes these verses are taken to mean, we're not talking just about general understanding of the mysteries of the world. Wisdom and folly are still defined by the context. We're still talking about the cross. And there are fundamentally two groups of people in the world. Those who understand it and those who don't. Christians and non-Christians. There are not, as sometimes this passage is used to describe, gradations of Christians. Some who are kind of the, the, the super-Christians. And then kind of ordinary Christians. Christians and not. We'll see how this comes up in a couple different places in the passage. But that's the context that sets us up as we move into verses 6 to 16. Paul is still talking about the cross and how it is that people come to properly perceive it. And as we look at this passage, I think we're going to find some, as we often do, some challenge, a little bit of challenge, but also 
maybe this morning a little more encouragement. I don't know how it will strike you individually, but there, there is challenge here. There is correction of thinking. There's, there's truth that Paul spells out for us that will inform us of the world that we live in, of who we are, of how we relate to him, of what God has to do in us if we're going to know him at all. There's truth here that may correct us and challenge us. But also, there is some great hope here that if you're a Christian, this is talking about what God is doing in you. That's a good thing. This is about God at work in you. And He hasn't stopped or forgotten. So there's something here that, that I think if, if we grasp this and, and see it, there's something to trust that should be sweet. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Begin in verse 6. Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2. It's a rather lengthy passage, but it's all held together by this continuation of this wisdom argument with the introduction of God the Holy Spirit. So those are kind of the two elements here that I'm going to be looking at this morning. The wisdom of God and the Spirit. And together they teach this main point. Here's, so here's my main point for this morning. God reveals His wisdom through His Spirit. God reveals His wisdom through His Spirit. So give thanks for Him, the Spirit, and give your will to Him. Give yourself to Him. God reveals His wisdom through His Spirit, so give thanks for Him and give your will to Him. I'll make two observations to kind of unpack that. Throughout this passage, if you happen to be looking at the ESV, you'll see there are three different paragraphs here. Maybe your English translation does something similar, but three paragraphs. There are three basic contrasts in the passage, and the first observation that I'm going to make is related to the first main contrast, and you'll hear it in my emphasis of speech here. 
So here's my first observation. God has decreed and then given His wisdom for the glory of His people. You hear the contrast. His versus the world's wisdom. God has decreed and then given His wisdom for the glory of His people. Christians, let's sort this out. Verse 6, Paul is eager to, to make clear that what he's just saying in the previous verses, he doesn't want to be misunderstood on that. He's just bashing on wisdom. He, he, up in verse uh, 1, he said, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. In verse 4, my speech and my argument was not with plausible words of wisdom. He's not about wisdom, but verse 6, I am actually, though, speaking about wisdom. So, I'm not about wisdom, but I am. What he, what he means becomes pretty clear pretty quickly. What he means is that among the mature, I am imparting wisdom. And here's where our context is important. He does not mean among mature Christians. In other places in, in his letters, he does talk about, and of course there is a reality, that Christians, we all vary in levels of maturity. Some are, are just brand new Christians who are immature in our thinking, or maybe we're older but we're acting like immature Christians. And there are, obviously, growth is a reality, so there are mature Christians. That's just not what he's talking about here. Here, when he says, among the mature, he's talking about this wisdom. What he means is, among Christians. Those whom God pulls to himself see this as wisdom. There's two categories, the mature and other. Which, understand something with that. This is a brief but kind of a sharp point. He's trying to reorient the whole world. If Christians are mature people, non-Christians are immature people. Now very carefully, he does not say this to insult non-Christians. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I'm not saying this to insult you. Okay? And I hope that you have, Christian, I hope that you have enough non-Christian friends that you don't want to be insulting and you, and you want to be very careful and sensitive on this issue. But there is an issue. Mature people versus immature people. Mature people are ones who are living with a larger view of reality and have an ability within them to put off temporary, short-term things for the sake of the whole reality. And fundamentally, the cross means there is a larger reality that a whole bunch of people in the world don't see and don't live for. But it is a reality. And again, he does not say this to insult non-Christians who don't see that and don't live for it. He says it to encourage Christians. Remember the context again. What he just said at the end of chapter, well, the last half of chapter 1. Not many of you, brothers, were of noble birth, were of high status, of wealth and of intelligence, the elite, the leaders of the world. Most of you are the others. 
So you, Christian, the church he's writing to, and many Christians throughout the world, you, you live in a world in which you are on the bottom looking up at people who have it all together, who have everything you can conceive of, and are making life work out. And the great temptation is to say, Oh, oh man, I want to be like that. I have a picture in my mind, which I won't be able to describe very accurately, but maybe you saw this if you get Voice of the Martyr magazine. I've seen it in several issues of a Pakistani Christian making clay bricks. Sunny field, long line of bricks, and he's got this, this little wooden mold in which he packs mud into, clay mud, and comes back a day later and, and knocks it out, and there's a clay brick. That's his job. Because it's the only job that Christians can do. Other jobs that pay better and have more prestige, other people can do, not Christians. Your job, go bend over this pile of mud and make bricks all day long for just enough money to live on. What kind of a fool am I to have embraced this that leads to this kind of life? I can barely feed my family and I'm killing myself. Maybe they'll let me keep this job if I'm lucky. What am I thinking? You're thinking properly. Mature person. You're putting off some temporary payoff, some reaction to a reality that's very front and center for the sake of something else that is more real than what you can see. That's maturity. There's a maturity in Christians that have grasped a wisdom that is not seen by the rest of the world. We don't experience this to the same degree here in America because we don't know what persecution is like. We don't know what it's like to be so thoroughly under. Maybe if you're a teenager, you do. Maybe if you're a teenager, you've kind of wrestled with this, or maybe if you're older, you can remember being a teenager, when you've wrestled with how intensely important it is to be approved by your peers. And man, to follow Christ looks like the stupidest, most child. You still believe those Sunday school stories? That can be hard. But teenager, if you hold to that, you are making a mature decision that the cool kids, that the other peers that are around you, they, they aren't seeing it. I encourage you, hold to Him. Walk in maturity. To the mature, He imparts wisdom. God has made and is making known wisdom that Paul is imparting or proclaiming in the Gospel. A wisdom which was hidden for ages past. Decreed by God. Decreed by God all the way back way back before time began. To decree, it's more than just saying, God said so. It's God planning and determining and etching something in stone that will be. He decreed it. Look at this. For our glory. See at the end of verse 7? If you're a Christian, let this settle on you. 
if you're not a Christian, this could be true of you. If you were to come to Christ, what this wisdom is about is about Christ come to earth to die on the cross to pay for sin. And if, if you're not a Christian, if you were to come to Him and embrace His cross, you'd be forgiven by what He did on the cross, paying for your sin, and you would be brought into this. But Christian, you already are in this. You're right here in this verse. He decreed this from ages past for your for your glory. He sent God the Son. Isn't that sentence supposed to end? For His own glory? Don't you say that all the time, Steve? For His own glory? Yes. Of course. The Bible is abundantly clear on that. But that's just not what this verse says. Look at it. It says, for your glory. So work on this. For our glory. His glory obviously is connected to this. He is glorified in what He has done. But for our glory. What does that mean? We get a little flavor of it in verse 9. Verse 9 hints at some things that are summarizing some of what we saw back in chapter 1 again. Verse 30. That would be a place I'd point you. Christ, the wisdom of God, which is our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So I'm working on glory here. Our glory. Christ made our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. You, you have to, Christian, you have to stop here and let this kind of go and fill. You need to kind of engage with this. In ages past, something that was hidden, and, and 9 says it was unknown, not seen, not heard, which of course is hyperbole. He's, he's alluding to a couple of verses in Isaiah. And if they could write about not knowing it, not dreaming about it, they dreamed about it, obviously. What he means is that it was not known. There was some sort of a glory, some sort of a blessing that they had a taste of, but knew is not yet. Decreed for the future. And now Christ has come and become your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. Think about this. God decreed for you something that has changed you. Righteousness. God acted to make you clean before Him. Forgiven. If that doesn't mean anything to you, you have no idea what your sin meant. And He removed it all. He made you righteous, which means He brought you back into a relationship with Him. So you stand before Him forgiven, joined to Him. Righteousness, sanctification, brought out of something into a place where He's making you holy. It's, it's one great thing to be forgiven. But then if you're left in your sin, struggling with it, that's halfway there. No, He'll take you all the way there. He's not just forgiving you of your sin. He is committed to working it out of you. Whatever that thing is that you're plagued by, the thing you can't seem to conquer, He is at work to pull it out. 
Like, like any growth process, you can't see it moment to moment to moment, but you can see it over years. Look at a five-year-old and a 15-year-old. They grew, though nobody's really quite sure where. He is at work in you to change you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Him, which is a great thing. He's forgiven you and brought you to Him and has pulled you out to make you more like Him, redeeming you, that is, freeing you from, that's a word from the slave market, freeing you from slavery to sin and making you a slave to Himself, a good master. Actually, comma, more than that, a friend of Him. Actually, comma, more than that, an heir of His. A son. And I say that even to the women. You are a son That's important because that means you are an heir. All that God has, a massive inheritance, He is giving to His heirs, men and women both. What's the inheritance? Let it fill. Think. This is not just forensic. Not just some words that we need to define and, and kind of get the right understanding of. This is, there's a reality that should fill what it means when He brings you to Himself and makes you an heir. Is that He has connected you to, even right now, the One whom the Bible describes as the perfect fulfillment of everything you were made for in whose presence you find the perfection of everything you're looking for. Everything you've ever missed is found in Him. Everything you've ever failed to achieve is is there. Everything. Look and put some words on it. Peace and, and joy and contentment and excitement and interest and creativity and beauty. We can put those words on it. Everything you can think of. In Him... And you have Him, freed from the penalty of sin, being freed from its power over you, and one day you will be freed from its very presence, brought into, where? A new heaven and a new earth in which there is no more sin, no more crying, no more fear, no more doubt. There you are glorified for our glory. What's so glorious about that place? He's there. And you no longer see Him through a glass dimly, trying to fight through the shadows and the smoke and the darkness. You see Him. Ah! We live now looking at shadows. We will see reality. We live now hearing echoes. We'll see the, I think it was C.S. Lewis put it, the original shout. I think it was him who said that. Way back long ago, God brought His people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through a great wilderness and delivered them into a land of promised rest, which wasn't rest. And Isaiah said, oh, there's a day coming. There's a day coming. He decreed it. And He brought it to pass in Christ for you. Christian, you are most blessed. Most blessed. 
God decreed and brought wisdom here for your glory. He has broken into the world and brought this glorious wisdom to pass. Delivered you out of bondage to sin into His presence and you enjoy it now a little bit and one day in fullness. You will be changed you know, there's little parts of the Bible. Sometimes we don't read them because we don't know what to make of them. You've got to read Revelation. You've got to read the last half of Isaiah, which Revelation's about. When it talks about, figuratively, sure, but it talks about what life is like there in a place where there's no need for light because God Himself is the light. There's a metaphor there, obviously, but think about what that means. Shining, no more darkness. This thing you need, He has given it to you. He decreed it and He brought it to pass when He sent His Son. I said there's a contrast here. So far, I've only been talking about one half of the contrast, you know, in a sentence or two, the other half is the wisdom of the world, which, man, if you think about that, and if it expands and fills, you think, well, what are we doing? What in the world? The rulers of this age, not meaning the government officials, but meaning all the people from chapter 1, the, the debater, the, the scribe, the wise man, the... the the wealthy man, the noble man, the, the people who are the elite have no experience of this. Maybe understand the English words if they speak English or the Greek words if they speak Greek, but no experience of it. And so they, they live for what they know. Though it is doomed to pass away. Why do we follow them? That's the issue. They're following them. That's what Paul wrote. Why? Because this is not seen by us as clearly as this right in front of us. The, the issue, the struggle in our lives, to whose wisdom we follow, whose path, whose way, whose values, goals, instructions, guidance we follow, comes down to an issue of where you think your glory is found. God says, here's where your glory, I've decreed this for your glory. And, and the whole rest of the world says, you know what's glory? A Super Bowl ring is glory. Live to get that, athlete. Your name on the biggest office in the building is glory. Live to get that, worker. Etc., etc., etc. And boy, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that Paul up in verse 4 described his message not in plausible words of wisdom because he hints at something there. There is a certain plausibility 
to what the world offers, is there not? I mean, we look at it and we say, there is something attractive and something fun and something good and something rewarding. And oftentimes, there actually is. It's just not the whole picture. The struggle before us is two offers of glory, two offers of blessing. And this one right here makes a perfect amount of sense. If you work and you produce, you will get paid, you will get the office, you will get the ring, whatever. I follow that. And over here, I'm going to be making bricks. Ah. Yes, mature person, think it through. Think it through. Please, for your own good, think it through. And to help and to assure that we do think it through properly, without which we would not think it through properly, God has given us His Spirit. Which is what the second observation is about. But please understand this. As I move to the second illustration, second point here, please understand that what you're facing every day is, is profoundly theological. We, we do not live with putting a theological cap on on Sunday mornings or maybe your Tuesday night Bible study or whatever, and then we take that off and live the rest of the life, rest of our life free from theology and doctrine. Your theology and doctrine walks with you wherever you go. And when you make a decision to follow the wisdom of the world, the way of the world, you're making a theological decision. I believe this is where my glory is found, and that is not. You're living theology. And he tells you, I decreed something, and I have brought something to pass that is for your glory. Now, obviously... He is glorified in showing His grace, in showing His mercy, in showing His love, in showing His power, in showing His wisdom to be able to do this, to dream it up and to accomplish it in our lives. It is all to His glory. But it's for our glory too. Making a theological decision every single moment of every day. And to help with that, He's given us His Spirit. So the second observation then revolves around the second contrast in the passage Note the emphasis again as I speak. God's wisdom is perceived accurately only by the illumination of His Spirit. His Spirit. There are two spirits, the Spirit of the world and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the world doesn't get it, can't see it. It just doesn't, can't, the text says. God's wisdom is perceived accurately only by the illumination of His Spirit. Verse 10, 9 leads into it, what no eye has seen or heard or imagined, God has wisely, graciously, lovingly, kindly decreed for us who love Him, for His people. And these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches out everything, even the depths of God. The the part of God that would be off-limits to all that's not in God, just like the inside of me is off-limits to all that's not inside of me, well, it's not off-limits to the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is not outside of God. The Spirit of God is God. Just to be clear, what we're talking about here is God the Holy Spirit. 
God, the only God who is. I'll be very clear about this. I'm not talking about the Christian God. I'm talking about the only God who is. Is triune. He is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not the same. They are distinct. They are not graded as in, you know, first level God, second level God, third level God. They all equally share all the attributes of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, three, and they are one God. There is only one true God. That's why God the Spirit knows what God's thinking, because He's God. It's crystal clear to Him. He doesn't even have to go and find it out. He already owns it. Just like my spirit does not ask me what I'm thinking, it just knows. So this is God the Spirit that we're talking about. The third person of the one triune, three in one, triunity. The one triune God. Sent from God to those whom He calls to Himself. Why? Verse 12. So that, see verse 12 there, now we have received, we being the Christians, received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that argument there, that we might be able, we might understand this wisdom from God, Christ crucified. All the blessing that flows from it. What God has freely given us. This is God's amazing idea. It is God's work. And it is not understandable to human beings apart from the illumining work of God the Holy Spirit. Illumining work. Illumination. Think flashlight or floodlight. I have a picture in my mind of of walking. First time I, I thought about this work of the Holy Spirit is at the University of Michigan and is walking across the campus at night and they, numerous buildings, one, uh, I have a big clock tower in the center of campus there. Several of them, that one in particular, illumined by outdoor floodlights. And if you think about what's going on there, the floodlight is just showing you what was already there but unseen. And the floodlight's job is not to draw attention to the floodlight. If you look at the floodlight, that doesn't work. Not only is it counter to what the intention is, but you get up blinded. You're supposed to say the floodlight is casting light on some great big edifice, a, a building or a tower or something, and now I can see that. And it was always there, I just couldn't see it before. The light goes on and you see something. God sent His Son into the world and our blind eyes don't see it until the light shines. God sent His Son into the world and until the light shines, we're blind to it. Now, now we're speaking spiritually here, of course, right? Because obviously, Christ was crucified on a hill in plain view of everybody. And Paul and the church 
then and on down through the ages have been proclaiming this message from the mountaintops and from the rooftops constantly. This is not a secret. But it's a secret that's hidden right there in the middle of the field in plain sight, not seen. Spiritually not seen. It must be illumined. So verse 10 points out that God sends His Spirit to reveal it to us. It's how He brings to pass our glory. Get the two pieces there? He decreed something and sent the One who would be our wisdom, that is, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. But we don't see Him until He does the second thing, sends us the Spirit. The light shines and we see it. So there's a double gift of God here. A double grace from God. And He gives us Christ, God the Son, and then gives us God the Spirit so that we can understand Christ, God the Son. And then come to know God the Father. God's wisdom is perceived accurately only by the illumination of the Spirit. Without Him, we're left in verse 14, in the middle of the third contrast. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. And he is unable, not able, to see them. That's what he's done. And I hope, Christian, I hope that as you think this through, that what rises up in your mind is God, underline, God has done something. Not me. God has done something. God has done something amazing. He has, ch- he has acted to change me, you if you're a Christian, to change you forever. You did not figure it out. You didn't. He sent His Spirit and revealed it to you. He sent His Spirit, and the very last phrase, end of verse 16, gave you the mind of Christ, which happens in a moment. And does not mean that you know absolutely, does not mean you're omniscient. It does not mean that we know everything. But He gave us the mind of Christ, a spiritual mind able to discern spiritual truth. And we have that mind given to us when He gives us the Spirit. So that in the same moment that He gives us that, and Paul imparts this message to it to us, he starts talking about Christ, starts talking about our sin, starts talking about how it's the only way to be forgiven. And if you are forgiven, look what He will bring you into. And the bubble goes like this, and you see, I see it. I see it. It's true. It's awesome. It's convicting. It's better than I can hope. I want it. And the guy sitting next to you says, Why bother? That's going to leave me in making bricks. I don't want that. Why is that? Surely you've had that experience. Where you're sitting next to somebody, and everyone's going, When will this be over? Or, not for me. Or maybe you're talking to 
spouse, relative, neighbor, coworker. They're not getting it. If they're getting anything, it's angry. You can avoid them getting angry by not telling the whole truth. But if you start talking about sin and judgment, people will begin to get angry. Why is that? Verse 14 tells us, the natural person does not accept this. It's spiritually discerned. Words of verse 13, it's not about human wisdom. It's in words taught by the Spirit. It is interpreting spiritual truth and spiritual words from the Spirit to spiritual people. All in plain English, not understood. So Christian, I hope that what you see here is that God, underline God, God has done something in you. And that is the only reason you understand any of this. He has done something. He's given you His Spirit. And that should do two things. It should cause to rise up in you a deep and real worship of Him. You owe absolutely everything to Him. Without His work of decreeing and then bringing to pass by giving you the Spirit... Without His work, you would not know glory. You'd be left only chasing after that which is doomed to perish. But He acted and did something marvelous for you. He loves you that much. He could have gone halfway and said, I'll send my son. Figure it out right there in front of your eyes. No, they won't. I'll send my spirit to shine on it. And that same spirit lives in you still. Come back to that in a moment. It should cause to rise in you some deep, passionate, real worship and thankfulness. God has done something for you. Amazing. And also, it should absolutely destroy all boasting and all pride and all arrogance because God did it. Not you. I am really concerned by how consistently I just lurch back into some little self-satisfaction that I understand some stuff. Crazy. The only reason I understand anything is that God has given me a spirit and, and illumined it. Do you find that in yourself? Do you, do you find a little bit of... Or maybe a little bit of... I figured out that Cephas is the best teacher and I'm after him. No, no, it's Apollos, my guy. Or I have not engaged in a relationship with this other person that has been sinful. 
I have been very patient and kind and gracious. They're the one who snapped at me. I did okay. You find that in yourself? The only, if by some way you manage to not be sinful in this relationship, it's by the grace of God, not by you. This message, this wisdom of God, this act of God should, not at the knees, at the ankles, should cut off all tendency towards pride and boasting and arrogance in us. We have nothing whatsoever to boast about except Him. May it produce in you a deep thankfulness and a trust and a hope. This one who has done all of this is not remotely inclined to now abandon you. Why in the world would he? Why would he? Why would he? Why would he go through all this trouble to save you and then say, now that right there is too much. He knew of it already. He began a good work in you. He will complete it. He walks with you in everything you do. This has to be seen in this passage and and drawn out. It should draw us to worship. Remember, Paul was writing this under the larger context of trying to undercut all their boasting and pride. I think we see how it does that too because everything is due to God's Spirit. We need to say that Worship Him and strike a blow as best we can at boasting. But there's one other thing we need to talk about that we should consider because it would be easy to miss it if we only read 14 to 16 with an eye on salvation, which is clearly there. All this is about how it is that we come to understand the cross and be saved. But there's something that's a little more there, both logically and it pokes through in the text. In places where we see Paul's tense, I'm talking grammar here, Paul's tense not be past tense. That's so confusing maybe. Paul does not say, for instance, I imparted. We imparted. He says, I impart. We impart. Or in verse 13, interpreting, not interpreted. It's not past tense. It's an ongoing thing. It's a continual thing. He does not say, when I came to you. Remember, he's not even in Corinth anymore. He's not saying, three years ago when I came to you, two years ago when I first met you, I imparted something then. He's saying, I am imparting. It's an ongoing thing. Even as he's writing right now to this church, he is imparting the same message again. So something that pokes through in the text, and and logically, we also realize that we need something more in an ongoing sense. We have the mind of Christ, so we understand the gospel, we see it for what it is, we turn to it, we embrace it, we believe, but then I think experientially, obviously we don't say, well there then, you know, everything's great, everything's fine, I I now know everything just perfectly and moving on. Because I still walk through every day making theological decisions at every turn and I mess up a whole bunch of them. 
Because in that moment, when I'm, I'm looking at, is this, the, is this where my glory is found? Is this where my blessing is found? Or is it over here? I make a theological decision based on poor sight. And I am still in need of the illumining of the Spirit Tuesday at 10.05. Not just 15 years ago when I became a Christian or whenever it was. See what I'm getting at there? We still, just today, we still have just as much need. We are still just as needy for the Spirit to shine. For the Spirit to, like a floodlight, illumine something for us. What is He illumining? It's like floodlights at the foot of the cross. Illumining in front of you God's wisdom. Christ crucified. So that when you're in this decision right here, there is something that is plausible. There's something, there's, you know, not bad. But there's this glaring bright light over here reflecting off of this massive edifice, the cross. Oh, yes. We need the Spirit to do that. To shine on the cross. And so at this point, I could say, preach the gospel to yourself. I could say that, but what this text says is have the Holy Spirit preach the gospel to you. What does that mean? Well, let me try to draw this together here. The emphasis here in this passage, the uniqueness about this section is obviously the work of God the Spirit. We'll see more about Him throughout this book. There's something that we need to be clear on, and I'll say it like this to be a little a little shocking, but then I'll qualify it. Um, we should be clear on the fact that Christian and charismatic are synonymous. Okay, now let me qualify that. We often in our minds understand charismatic to be a particular branch of Christianity that has a whole bunch of sign gifts and some stuff that makes some of us uncomfortable. But it need not be that way. The charisma, the charismatic gifts, more broadly speaking, are not only just the couple that give us trouble. Some of us trouble. They are the gifts given by God the Spirit. And boy, without that, where would we be? Where would you be if God the Spirit didn't give you anything? A non-Christian. We all are supposed to be Christian and person who receives gifts from the Spirit and lives by them. Those are synonymous terms. It is normal Christianity to live in communion with God the Holy Spirit. Normal Christianity to live, as Paul says in Galatians, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking with Him through life. Not out of step, not out of sync, not deviating from, but walking with Him. It is normal Christianity to live filled with, that is directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And for some of us, I think... We kind of have the Holy Spirit probably in a shelf in our official theology. We know about the Trinity, but we don't really consciously commune with Him. Now, I say this very carefully because, as I just said with the floodlight illustration, the Holy Spirit 
would say, humanly speaking, hey, I want to hang out with you. He'd say, hey, let's go find Jesus. His job is to take us to Christ. But he's extremely good at that job. That's his job. We need him. We need him to illumine the truth of God's word. You know, when Paul says that he's imparting words, to, not taught by humans, taught, taught by the Spirit, those words now for us are right here. Which is why if you compare Ephesians and Colossians, you have filled with the Spirit, in, filled with the Word, in very similar context. If you want to talk about that later, I can point out to you. Because being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word merge. God, the Spirit, takes God's Word and shines on it for us. We, we can't be filled with the Spirit separate from God's Word. As if they're two, dis, two distinct things. We need the Holy Spirit. So, Christian, you need the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, there is not a, a formula that if you do A and B and C, then He shows up as if He is under our control. He's God. But what we know from the Bible, that He speaks in His Word, and He is grieved by sin and pride, which is sin. So how you avoid the Holy Spirit is you avoid His Word and you walk in arrogance. You avoid His Word and say, I got this. I got it under control. I know what I'm doing. I know how to make it work. God the Spirit will very likely say, okay. And what will come out of that is nothing of profit. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. So how we turn to Him then involves two basic things. Again, I'm not giving you a formula here. I'm just saying these are, these are logical, obvious things. We turn to Him by confessing sin. And talking to Him in a surrendered attitude. An attitude of submission. So something like, God help me. Spirit of God, will you take me and lead me? Spirit of God, will you teach me? God, you don't have to say Spirit of God. You can say God. He'll uh, work it out. God, help. God, I am not going to drive my agenda. What do you want? I'm going to listen as best I can. Correct me when I am biased. Help. To walk with the Spirit, another word for that is to live with the Spirit, is an active word. To live dependent on the Spirit is an active dependence. It is not a passive dependence where I, I sit back and wait for Him to do something. I come to Him humbly, come to Him humbly, confessing sin and say, Lord, guide me. I'm faced with a theological decision right now at 10.05. I can't postpone that until tomorrow. It's right now. So God, help me. 
God, would you show me who you are? Would you show me where my glory is actually found? And then obey Him. Obedience is not contrary to the Spirit. Obedience is empowered by the Spirit. I realize that I'm kind of taking two or three minutes, five minutes to talk about something that that can be in some ways intellectually complicated, but I, I want to try to pull that out and say it's not actually intellectually complicated. It doesn't need to be. You can simply approach God and say, I need you, apart from you I perish. I need you, apart from you I can't see. Help me. And then step out and do what you know to do. We live dependent upon Him when we confess our sin and ask Him to fill our minds with the truth and overthrow all the lies and then step out and obey. God has decreed and then given us a tremendous wisdom and we only perceive that properly through the Spirit. So we should praise Him for that, but we should also give our will to Him. Stop resisting Him. Submit to Him. That's what He calls us, His church, to. It's where He gives Himself to us. We come to Him humbly. So I invite you, Christian, we're going to take a few minutes now as we move towards communion. Move towards communion. Take just a minute or two here, and, and I'm not sure who was going to play piano, but maybe somebody could play piano. As we move towards that, take a minute and just do those couple of things. Confess any sin that comes to your mind. As you're sitting here, ask God, where have I walked away from you? And then say, Lord, I want to be submitted to you. I want, I want you to have your way with me. And I don't know what that means in your particular life. But just say, Lord, I want you to have your way with me. Talk to God like that or about whatever else you need to talk to God about. And then we'll close it and move to communion. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.